0: Hello, greetings, thanks for joining us today. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And it is written in Jeremiah, the 7th chapter, beginning in the first verse. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Stand in the gate of Yahweh's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares Yahweh. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares Yahweh, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim there is no date of when this proclamation was made no earlier than 637 BC probably still in the days of Josiah between then and about 609 BC and in it we have the essential prophetic message that was delivered to Judah in the house of David by Jeremiah but also by Isaiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Zephaniah and many others Judah needs to repent of her sins she forsake the idolatry that they've been committing, committing. They need to trust in Yahweh, not foreign policy, and Yahweh would keep them in the land. If they did not, the day of Yahweh would come, and the land would be filled with drought and famine, pestilence, plague, and the sword and exile would follow. And there was a great demonstration to their north of proof. What happened to Shiloh in the kingdom of Israel can happen also to Jerusalem and to Judah. But as with Israel, so with Judah. The people did not listen, and the day of Yahweh arrived in 586 B.C. by the hands of Babylon. And so today we do well to explore the day of Yahweh against Judah 586. What happened that led to the destruction of Jerusalem? Why did the people not listen to the prophets? How did the Judahites respond to their calamity? And what can we gain in our faith from exploring these events? Now for our purposes, the path towards 586 begins in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So what we can see in 2 Kings 20, 2 Chronicles 32, Isaiah 39, somewhere between 729 and 687 BC. The Kings and Chronicles authors have commended Hezekiah for his faithfulness toward Yahweh and for good reason. But it was his rebellion against the king of Assyria by refusing to pay the annual tribute uh, demonstrating his vassalage that led Judah to the precipice when Sennacherib came and invaded obliterated most of the land leaving Jerusalem only now either as a result of this rebellion or maybe of what helped foment that rebellion uh, the Chaldean ruler of Babylon merodach Baladon had sent envoys to Hezekiah that he had received warmly Hezekiah allied himself with Babylon against Assyria when these envoys came in Isaiah prophesied what was going to happen because of all of this the Chaldeans that all saw all the things that Hezekiah showed him would eventually take all these things away to Babylon in Isaiah 39 5-7 and Hezekiah's tepid response is very ominous he says the word of Yahweh is good he accepts it for what it is he doesn't lament it because he says the disaster won't happen in his day they're secured in his own lifetime so let's think about it, if this is how a robustly faithful ruler like Hezekiah responds how much worse then will it be when there was not a faithful king And we're told in 2 Kings 21, 1-18, through it was the blatant idolatry of Hezekiah's son Manasseh that was the last straw for Yahweh. Destruction and exile was going to come. He reigned from 687 to 642. Uh, Many had committed idolatry in Judah before, but we get the impression that no one went as far as Manasseh did, introducing the service to foreign gods within the temple of Yahweh itself, building altars and statues in that building itself. And in 2 Kings 21, 10 through 15, Yahweh says, All right, I'm done. I'm handing them over. They're going to be destroyed and exiled. He makes it clear that's what's going to happen. Now, in 2 Chronicles 33, we learn that Manasseh would later repent of his sins, and Judah's fate was therefore delayed. Manasseh's son, Amon, lived for two years. He is inconsequential, but Amon's son, Josiah, would prove zealous for Yahweh as Hezekiah had. He heard the law, he recognized the sin of Judah, and he repented. Yahweh heard Josiah and delayed the punishment in 2 Kings 22, uh, verses 1 through 20, also mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, 1 through 33. Now, relatively speaking, Yahweh would allow Judah to prosper uh, in the days of Josiah. Josiah was the one who reclaimed part of Israel for Judah, uh, because Assyria was weakening in his day. This is when they destroyed the temple at Bethel and did all the things prophesied uh, long before. Uh, demonstration here, uh, and it's very important uh, that Josiah recognized what happened. He repented. They sought the a prophet. The prophet Asolda told him, uh, "It would the disaster was definitely decreed, but it would not happen in his day, because he had lamented and he had repented of that sin." But even Josiah was as seduced by foreign policy maneuvers as Hezekiah had been, and it would lead to his downfall. Now understand how this would happen in 609, we have to understand what's been going on in the ancient Near East. The uh, Assyrians had remained strong and powerful from the time they had destroyed the the kingdom to the north in 722 uh, until this time. But in Josiah's day, Assyrian hegemony shockingly collapsed in a speedy way. From 626 to 609, uh, Assyria went down the tubes. A coalition of Medians and the Chaldeans under Nabopolassar, who was son Nebuchadnezzar, was general, we're we'll going to hear about him more very soon, uh, would repeatedly defeat Assyria, and they entered Nineveh and destroyed it in 612 uh, BC. Nico II, Pharaoh of Egypt, was alarmed by these events, and so he led his army north to help prop up the rump Assyrian state against the Chaldean menace, and to fight against the Babylonians. But Josiah had remained allied with the Chaldeans. Probably a heritage going all the way back to uh, Nep- uh, his great-grandfather Hezekiah. And so we see in 2 Chronicles 35, at the end of his life, Josiah goes out to fight against Nico to at least delay him from arriving at, at, at this at this battle. And what's fascinating about this is that Nico says, What do we have to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but I am against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. And the interesting thing, the chronicler says, Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight him. He did not listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. So God would have had Josiah avoid this whole thing, but Josiah wants to be a player in this whole thing. He goes out there, and it ends up killing him. He dies in the battle. Josiah dies. Now, in the wake of Josiah's death, the people make his son Jehoahaz his uh, uh, king. And he reigns in 609 for three months. Now on the way back through Judah, uh, Pharaoh Necho deposes uh, Jehoahaz. Why? Because Necho and the Pharaohs have always maintained the presumption that they have still maintained their holdings in Canaan, all the way back from the grandiose days of the Tutmoses. back uh, by this point, um, over a millennium before. Um now, for the majority of the past 800 years, they've not been able to make good on it, uh, but they still pretend here. And so now that he's back in that land, he's going to say, hey, no, Judah is part of my land. Therefore, I'm going to do what I want to. I'm going to remove the king. Uh, he put his brother Jehoiakim as king and imposed a heavy tax on Judah. In 605, Nico met Nebuchadnezzar's forces at Carchemish, and Nico was decisively routed. The Chaldean Babylons were now the strong force in the ancient Near East, and Egypt as an independent nation was never a strong, threatening force again. This is something we know. This is something that was not known or as obvious in 6.05 and following uh, as it is to us now. We need to keep that in mind in thinking about why Judah did this. Jehoiakim, we're told, would reign for 11 years in 2 Kings 23. He persisted in the idolatry. He did not follow the example of his father, Josiah. Now, whether this is a policy imposed by Fiat, by whether by the political contrivances of Jehoiakim, Judah manifestly breaks its alliance with Babylon and now is seeming to rely on Egypt for support. Uh, Again, they think it may be stronger than it really is. They may think that Egypt's on the brink of a Renaissance. We may know better, but we can't impose that knowledge upon them. Somewhere around 598-597, Nebuchadnezzar's forces descend upon Judah. The chronicler asserts, The Jehoiakim is taken to Babylon, whereas in the king's uh, material seems like he dies naturally or dies of of something going on involving this conflict around this time. Regardless, both agree what happens because of Jehoiakim's resistance to Babylonian power. It doesn't go well. Uh, Instead, his son Jehoiakim will be exiled to Babylon within three months. With him will go the nobility and the elite of Judah and and many of the vessels from the temple itself. Zedekiah, son of Josiah, was made king in his stead as a client king in 597. Uh, This is also the time where Daniel and his friends are exiled to Babylon as well, from Daniel chapter 1. Zedekiah, we're told, will reign 11 years. Zedekiah will also rebel against the Babylonians, and Nebuchadnezzar was simply done with it. And, uh... Zedekiah relied upon confidence in Egyptian assistance to withstand Babylon. Egypt proved unable or unwilling to assist. Nebuchadnezzar's forces besieged Jerusalem for about 18 months. Uh, In 586, the city's walls were breached. The Babylonians plundered the city and put it to the torch. The temple was destroyed. Zedekiah himself was blinded. His children were killed. The kingdom of Judah was eliminated as a going concern. The line of David has not reigned over a political kingdom since. To quell any further resistance, Nebuchadnezzar exiled all but the poorest of the poor to Babylon. And after troubling events uh, where the new governor was killed, uh, as can be seen in the end of Jeremiah and also in Second Kings, uh, the, most of those poor even themselves fled to Egypt. And so this is why the land of Judah was almost entirely depopulated from 585 until 540 BC. And in fact, the Edomites would begin encroaching on it, which would lead to the eternal hostility uh, that is manifest in Malachi, in Obadiah, and books like that. We do well to note in this story how Judah's political alliances shifted with the winds. Their ally, like Babylon, would become their oppressor. And their former oppressor, Egypt, would become their ally. And ultimately, neither Babylon nor Egypt really cared about Judah. They only cared about their own kingdoms and their growth. Judah proved to be a pawn far, and again, that was far too big for them. They bore the brunt of the pain and misery for their decision. So that's how it went down. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel might be able to claim astonishment at the events they suffered, because there had been no precedent. Judah, though, could not say any such thing, because they had seen what had happened to Israel. And so, why was it so difficult for Judah to imagine that they could suffer the same fate as the Israelites that had come before them? Why did they not recognize the dangers in their foreign policy games? Well, in this case, we don't really have to wonder. The prophets explained explicitly why the people did not listen. First and foremost, Judah had taken the wrong lesson with their near miss in the days of Hezekiah. What do we mean by this? Well, in 2 Kings 18, 2 Chronicles 32, Isaiah 36 and following, in 701 B.C., Sennacherib invaded Judah. He laid waste to the land. He conquered all of its cities except for Jerusalem. He besieged Jerusalem, and Yahweh's intervention saved the city. Now, in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah gives the information to is Judah as to what they're supposed to learn from this. To realize that Yahweh had just left a remnant, and had Yahweh not left a remnant, which is basically living like in a, in a tent in a field, uh, they would have been completely eliminated like Sodom and Gomorrah. This was their call to, to put away evil, to follow justice, to have themselves cleansed, to repent, to change their ways. Uh, they should not tempt fate again. Uh, it may not go as well the second time around, but that's not what they took away from it. What they took away from it is what we read in Jeremiah 7 and verse 4. When Jeremiah warned them not to trust in these deceptive words, this is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. W- w- what does that mean? Well, that means that the, is, the the Judahites were just convinced. Yahweh would never allow foreigners to trample his courts. He would never hand Jerusalem over to the pagans. They thought Yahweh would never let the nations get glory over them. Now, there's a lot of theological weight behind that belief. And it no doubt is what is underpinning uh, the claims of Hananiah. In jeremiah 28 we get another vivid picture of what's going on in the minds of the Judites. this is around 594 593 so by this time you already had the first wave of exile uh, and you you haven't had the the final collapse yet you've already had uh, one wave of exile and so Uh, Hananiah stands up in Jeremiah 28 in verse 2 and says thus says Yahweh of hosts the God of Israel I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of Yahweh's house which Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon took away from this place and carried to Babylon I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah the son of Jehoiakim king of Judah and all of the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon declares Yahweh for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon now this was immediately after, and no doubt a response to Jeremiah in chapter 27 having taken up a yoke and encouraging everyone in Judah and the surrounding nations to bear the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, whom he said Yahweh had given power and over authority over the nations. So the Judahites, uh, you listen to Hananiah, you listen to Jeremiah, you know which one you want to listen to, right? Uh, the Judaites were convinced that what would happen to Israel would not happen to them because Yahweh dwelt on Zion would not let the nations get over, glory over him. Very attractive and appealing theologically, that's what the Psalms were talking about, not, were they not, Yahweh reigning in Zion. And uh, what makes your better? Theology, really. Our God is great we will uphold his name, or God has empowered our enemies and we should serve them. Uh, we all know the answer we want to believe, and Judah certainly wanted to believe it as well. Uh, Hananiah was no doubt seen by the people as a loyal Judahite. Jeremiah, on the other hand, they were convinced, especially toward the end, that he was uh, working for Nebuchadnezzar, giving material comfort to the enemy, and he suffered terribly in the final days of the exile, final days of the uh, siege because of it. And politically, give it to this for Judah. Why not? Was Nebuchadnezzar really any greater than Sennacherib? Was Yahweh not able to destroy the Babylonian hosts in front of the walls of Jerusalem, just like he destroyed the hosts of Assyria? Both Hezekiah and Josiah were kings honored for their service to Yahweh, and yet both of them, as we saw, were deeply compromised in foreign policy schemes. And even when things looked bad, well, in seven oh one things looked real bad, didn't they? Uh, the Assyrians destroyed everything in Judah, left everybody cooped up in uh, Jerusalem like a bird. And what was the result? So ultimately, Judah makes a bad gamble. They presumed that Yahweh had done once to the Assyrians, he would do again against the Babylonians and that is why the pronouncement is made regarding manasseh in 2nd kings is so important because the game had changed something was different when the babylonians came to town that was not true when the assyrians came to town also what ezekiel sees in ezekiel chapter 10 when he sees the, the, the glory of yahweh leaving the temple the presence of yahweh leaving the temple this was really the judgment on jerusalem Once Yahweh's presence left there, there was nothing special about the place. It was because Yahweh dwelled on Zion that Zion was secure. When Yahweh left Zion, Zion was no longer secure. It was left to the fate of the world, and the world treated it accordingly. That is why what seemed to be good theology had become false prophecy. And why what looked like treason was actually truth. That's what changed everything. And Judah refused to recognize it but to their credit we need to talk about the fallout how did the Judahites respond to the day of Yahweh in 586 well for some of them unfortunately they responded the same way as their uh, kin in Israel had in fact we have a very interesting uh, snippet of this in Jeremiah 44 so after the the siege is over after the city is destroyed after the Governor is killed after Jeremiah is taken against his will to Egypt, he's in Egypt, and he sees that there are some Judites who had fled to Egypt whose wives were making offerings to the Queen of Heaven. And he uh, chastises them in the name of Yahweh for doing though, and their husbands defended them because they said, "Hey, because we stopped offering to the Queen of Heaven, everything has gone wrong. Look, everything's awful. We're just going to keep offering to the Queen of Heaven." So some Judahites did see the destruction of Jerusalem, the confirmation of this ancient Near Eastern Synthesis, that your God is happy with you, uh, things go well with you, your God's angry at you, you're destroyed. And they had convinced that they, they actually that the reforms of Hezekiah and Josiah were the problems that led to their destruction, not actually uh, momentary um, reasons why their punishment was delayed. And uh, they were no longer in Yahweh's land, and so they weren't serving him anymore. They were serving all these other gods. And these Judahites most likely assimilated into Egypt or whatever other land they were exiled into and uh, lost their distinctiveness, just like the Israelites to their north had done. But a good number of the Judahites did not go the way of the Israelites. And they would be the catalyst for what would be one of the most powerful transformations we've ever seen. The powerful transformation of Judahite spirituality in a very real way leading to what we call Judaism. We see the processing of the events in Lamentations. In Lamentations, there's great detail, identification of what happened, where it talks about the experience of suffering that Jerusalem, daughter Zion went through, a recognition of the reason that it happened, the, 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 the sinfulness of the people, and a demonstration of confidence in Yahweh that he would deliver, that he would ultimately rescue. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel will have messages of encouragement, recognizing, yes, Yahweh's poured out his anger on his people, but he rest- would restore them to himself again. In Jeremiah, this is kind of in the middle of the book, in Jeremiah 30:31, 30, that passage talking about that new covenant. Uh, in Ezekiel, it's very different. Ezekiel is very depressing, very chastising, very sharp, until the walls fall, until the moment of destruction. And then the rest of the book, chapter 37 onward, are messages of consolation and encouragement for a future restoration. Isaiah 40-66 through 66 may have been written in the days of Hezekiah, but they're directed to the Judites in exile. They affirm Yahweh's existence and power. They comfort the people. They're looking toward a restoration. Now, some among the exiles had maintained court records and other such documents, and they used these documents to set forth the history of Israel and Judah and they told that story in such a way to emphasize a lesson learned in the destructions of israel and judah that the forefathers had sinned in their idolatry and their trust in foreign policy and that yahweh had judged them and that explains why the books of first and second kings look the way they do and are written the way they are and tell the history the way they tell them these judaites had learned the lesson yahweh intended for them to have learned they did not abandon their ancestral faith and hope and in fact, it would be some of their descendants who would return from the exile. Second Temple Judaism is born out of 586 and the experience of exile. Without it, we have no reason to believe the Jews would have been as fervent in their belief in Yahweh and trust in his promises despite the persecutions and challenges that they endured. So 586 is a decisive moment in the history of Israel's people of God. Israel would never be the same. The nation was judged for the sins of their ancestors and for their own sins in idolatry and foreign policy debacles. Untold thousands had died and the rest were exiled. And really, the religious practices of Israel under the kings was permanently ended by 586. Second Temple Judaism was maybe based on the same law and populated by a later generation of the same people, but its nature and conception was entirely different. There's a lot that we can learn from the experience of Judah in 586 because judah's danger is our danger trusting that since god's grace and mercy can cover anything means that he will cover our misdeeds no matter what and that what god did once is what he will continue to do regardless now we've got to be very careful about this First and foremost, yes. John 3:16 and the other passages. God loves us. Jesus died for us that we can be forgiven of our sins. Yes, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 17. No sin is too great for atonement. Paul, who was guilty of murder, was able to be uh, forgiven because uh, the grace that God provides in Jesus can transcend any sin. But yet, the Hebrews author speaks in Hebrews 10:26 through 31 that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It can be very easy for us to put our trust in our participation in the church, our identification with Jesus as his as uh, His follower, and to presume that no matter what go- happens, God will save us because we are his people. This is why Paul, in the midst of talking to Israel according to the flesh, uh, so strongly insists in chapter 5. Uh, sorry, chapter 2 of Romans, beginning in verse 5. Because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up for wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. There is no partiality shown on the basis of somebody's identification status. Uh, it is all done, judged based on what actually was done. We have perhaps seen at times that God has rescued us out of our difficulties. And it becomes easy to think that well, if we fall in difficulties, God will rescue us again. Yet perhaps he had grace and mercy once for a season. Without further repentance, perhaps God will not show that grace and mercy the next time and will leave us to suffer the consequences of our action without his presence, which is the definition of what happened to Judah in 586. Continued existence, by the way, does not inherently equal justification of behavior. The apostles insist in the New Testament on the same lessons of the prophets in the Old Testament that our deliverance is evidence of God's love, grace, kindness, and mercy. What does Paul say in Romans 2 and verse 4 before the passage we just read? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It is not to justify our continued recalcitrance. Therefore we need to be very careful that we are... maintain humility that we seek to repent that we seek to change our behaviors because there's absolutely no guarantee that just because we've been taken care of once means that God's going to continue to take care of us despite our sinfulness. Judah's example also teaches us about trial working to purge and cleanse the people of God in their faith. Arguably the remnant of God's people in Judah came out of exile with stronger faith than they had beforehand. They had recognized the source of their calamity they lamented over it, and they turned to Yahweh in faith. They trusted in Yahweh as the God of Israel who made covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. That is precisely why they endured in their faith. And in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, we see that that's the way it must be for Christians as well. Our faith is supposed to prepare us for days of trial and difficulty. We must identify the source of our calamity. We need to lament over it. And if we can do that, we will come out with stronger faith than beforehand. And 586 was also a great antiseptic to pride judah was laid low judah would in fact never recover in trial we are often laid low and we learn humility through the experience and thus we're better able to identify with Christ in these ways as as modeled in Philippians 2 5 through 11 586 also compelled the judahites to identify where their ancestors went wrong and crucially this is of such great importance they never justified it we have spent some time looking at the reasoning why the Judaists did as they did so that we can identify with them to see how it's possible. Because a lot of times when you just read it, you come across, how come away with the impression, how come they didn't listen? Well, there are contextual reasons why they didn't listen. But we have to dig those out from the passages inside. When it comes to later response in the Kings, in the Chronicles, and as we can see in, in Zechariah chapter 1, uh, Yahweh is very angry with your fathers therefore say to them thus declares Yahweh of hosts return to me says Yahweh of hosts and I will return to you says Yahweh of hosts do not be like your fathers whom the former to whom the former prophets cried out thus says Yahweh of hosts return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds but they did not hear or pay attention to me declares Yahweh your fathers where are they and the prophets did live forever but my words and my statutes which I commanded my servants of prophets did they not overtake your fathers so they repented. said as Yahweh of hosts have purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds so has he dealt with us they understood that their fathers had sinned they never excused it and the way they look at their past involved the sinfulness of their ancestors that is why the historical accounts of the Old Testament are extraordinary in human history it is the only account that puts more emphasis on the people's failings and sins than it does on their wonderful deeds And that's because it's not designed to be propaganda. It is designed to be a warning against future disobedience, lest you fall by the same example. The people of God need to treat the sins of their fathers the way the Jews treat the sins of theirs. We need to forthrightly admit it, that our fathers have sinned. We should lament it. Perhaps even ask for forgiveness for it, and how we may still share in it, like Daniel does in Daniel 9. And we must never seek to justify it or accord dignity to the fathers, which is really an attempt to minimize and deflect the ugliness of their transgression in a way to try to make ourselves feel better about those men and women that we knew in the past. We do not need to justify them as creatures of their culture, that they were of their time. Well, so was Judah and Israel in their time. And God didn't justify them, the prophets didn't justify them, and their descendants didn't even justify them. They should have known better, the prophets talked to them, they had the law, they had no excuse, they disobeyed, they suffered the consequences. And so it is with our ancestors. They should have known better, they had the revelation what God had made known in the word, they rebelled against it, and they will receive whatever punishment they will receive because of it if they have not received God's grace and mercy. In First Corinthians 10, 1-12, Paul explicitly says that we have these examples in the past that we may not fall by the same pattern of disobedience. We work to understand them only so that we do not do what they did. Now, days of Yahweh have no doubt come for nations ever since. Many of them have trusted in things that worked before, but the second time around don't work as well. But a day is coming when God will bring everyone under judgment in Christ according to what they have done in the body. The question is going to come to all of us. What have we done with the kindness God has granted us that was supposed to lead us to repentance? Did we actually repent? Or have we persisted in disobedience? If we have repented, we will obtain the resurrection of life. But if we have not repented, we will be left to our own devices and obtain the resurrection of condemnation. And that is why we must all put our trust in God in Christ, to repent fully of our sins, and therefore to obtain the resurrection of life. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. If you have any questions or comments about anything that we've mentioned here, if you to talk about it further, if you have a prayer request, or you'd like to learn more about us, please find us online at of Christ.org. We're also on uh, social media. Uh, if I can be of any service, please contact me at my website at That's www.deverbovitae.com. And please, uh, if this benefited you, please share it with your friends, family, and others on social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.